We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles to First Chronicles. Again, not a Christmas reading, but one in our continuing series through the Bible. We're in First Chronicles 23, and I uh, think that we're going to have a challenge with this one tonight. Pronunciation challenge, if nothing else. So let's work at this. First Chronicles 23. Remember, David had last, uh, when we left them, prepared to build the temple, uh, just gathering materials and so on and organizing uh, stone cutters and, uh, and, and workers and things for his son Solomon. So it says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 23, So when David was old and full of days, he made his son Solomon king over Israel. And he gathered together all the leaders of Israel with the priests and the Levites. Now the Levites were numbered from the age of 30 years and above, and the number of individual males was 38,000. Of these, 24,000 were to look after the work of the house of the Lord, 6,000 were officers and judges, 4,000 were gatekeepers, and 4,000 praised the Lord with musical instruments, which I made, said David, for giving praise. Also David separated them into divisions among the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Uh, do you remember in the birth narrative of John the Baptist about these divisions? Zecharias went to serve in the temple according to his division. And these were the divisions that were set up and organized at this time uh, a thousand years earlier. Amazing. So the scripture says, Of the Gershonites, verse 7, Laadan and Shimei, sons of Laadan, the first Jehiel, then Zetham and Joel, three in all. The sons of Shimei, Shalomith, Haziel, and Haran, three in all. These were the heads of the father's houses of Laadan. And of the sons of Shimei, Jehath, Zena, Jeush, and Beriah, these were the four sons of Shimei. Jehath was the first and Ziza the second, but Jeush and Bariah did not have uh, many sons, therefore they were assigned as one father's house. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Esar, Hebron, and Uziel, four in all. The sons of Amram, Aaron, and Moses. And Aaron was set apart, he and his sons forever, that he should sanctify the most holy things, to burn incense before the Lord, to minister to him, and to give the blessing in his name forever. I think that's referring to the Aaronic blessing numbers 6, 24 through 26. Now the sons of Moses, I'm sorry, yes. Now the sons of Moses, the man of God, were reckoned to the tribe of Levi. The sons of Moses were Gershon and Eliezer. Of the sons of Gershon, uh, Shebuel was the first of the descendants of Eliezer. Uh, Rehabiah was the first. And Eliezer had no other sons, but the sons of Rehabiah were very many. Of the sons of Esar, Shalomith was the first. Of the sons of Hebron, Jeriah was the first, Amariah the second, Jehaziel the third, and Jechmiam the fourth. Of the sons of Uziel, Micah was the first, and Jeshiah the second. The sons of Merari were Mahil and Mushi. The sons of Mahil were Eleazar and Kish. And Eleazar died and had no sons, but only daughters. And their brethren, the sons of Kish, took them as wives. The sons of Mushi were Mali, Eder, and Jeromo. Jeremot, three in all. 
These were the sons of Levi by their father's houses, the heads of the father's houses as they were counted individually by the number of their names, who did the work for the service of the house of the Lord from the age of 20 years and above. But David said, The Lord God of Israel has given rest to his people that they may dwell in Jerusalem forever, and also to the Levites. They shall no longer carry the tabernacle or any of the articles for its service. For by the last words of David, the Levites were numbered from 20 years old and above, because their duty was to help the sons of Aaron in the service of the house of the Lord, in the courts and in the chambers, in the purifying of all holy things, and the work of the service of the house of God both with the showbread and the fine flour for the grain offering, with the unleavened cakes and what is baked in the pan and what is mixed and with all kinds of measures and sizes, to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord and likewise at evening. And at every presentation of a burnt offering to the Lord on the Sabbath and on the new moons and on the set feasts by number according to the ordinance governing them regularly before the Lord, and that they should attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting, the needs of the holy place, and the needs of the sons of Aaron, their brethren, in the work of the house of the Lord. 1 Chronicles 23. Obviously, that work was very important, wasn't it? They had uh, how many thousands of full-time employees uh, ready to go uh, at that? Now, of course, they all didn't operate at the same self-same time. They were in these courses, but there were thousands of them at any one time, available to do the work uh, there at the uh, temple. Well, coming temple, anyway. So, yeah, very interesting, isn't it? Well, that's First Chronicles. And now we turn our attention back to where we were this morning. If you would just uh, kind of rewind your mind back there uh, to the 9.45 to 10.30 time slot. We talked about the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth. And if you weren't here, I'll just review briefly for you. We mentioned about the true Christian Christian teaching of the virgin birth and then some uh, offshoots, if you will, or uh, uh, heresies, some of them, uh, and then speculations that are not worthy of our attention any further than just a mention of them, so we're familiar with them. But we saw three key ideas about the virgin birth of Christ this morning. The first was that the virgin birth is essential to the person of Christ, the second, that it's essential to the work of Christ, and that third, it is essential to the integrity of God's prophetic word. So in the sense of it being essential to the work of Christ, we said that the need stands for a man to die for other men, to take their penalty for them. So God has arranged that a man would stand in place of other men, that is, other humans, other people, and, but he had to be a sinless man, which is only possible in one way, and that is that Jesus Christ would be that man. So the virgin birth arranged for that situation to come about, that there could be somebody who was a man but yet who was sinless. Uh, it, it also, uh, we said, was essential for the integrity of God's prophetic word in that the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 had to be fulfilled. Uh, if it was not fulfilled, then God's word would be void, and we would be uh, standing without any foundation under our feet. The Bible would be just uh, gone. It wouldn't be uh, worth the page, the paper that it's printed on. But we know that's not the case. Obviously, the, the Word of God has been fulfilled, and the integrity of the prophetic Word stands. 
I spent the most time on the first of those three points, and that is the virgin birth is essential to the person of Christ. It allows him to be one person instead of two people, a human uh, generated by natural procreation, and then the divine person, you know, somehow kind of being combined into one. That doesn't work the way that the scriptures present it. We have one divine person who took on him an impersonal human nature. Uh, Secondly, for Christ's sinlessness, because whenever you have a father and a mother who are sinful, they come together and they produce a sinful child, a child with a sin nature just like themselves. Christ was spared that. Uh, Christ's human nature was a part of this whole virgin birth that he was connected to Mary, you can say organically connected to Mary and thus to the human race. And also, we mentioned this this morning, I think, too, the genealogies of Christ in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 uh, speak to his connection to the human race through David and Solomon and David and Nathan in turn. So Jesus is a descendant of David through Solomon, through Joseph, uh, by way of adoption, of course, and then he's a descendant of David through Nathan by... uh, you know, through Nathan all the way down to Mary as his mother. And so uh, we have that aspect uh, of the virgin birth. And then finally, for Christ's divine nature, uh, he had to enter humanity somehow, and he entered it through this means. The Bible says that Jesus was promised to be Emmanuel, which you know, you know what that means, right? Emmanuel, yes, God, the L part, with us, God with us. And he with us. I am with you always, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, and uh, promises never to leave us nor forsake us. We see that in Hebrews chapter 13. So without the virgin birth, you have none of this. You have none of these essential elements of the Christian faith. And I, I made the case this morning, and uh, perhaps you uh, adopted it as well for yourself, that without the virgin birth of Christ, uh, we have no faith really on which to stand. Like without the resurrection of Jesus, you know, without that, we're of all men most miserable. We have just a a kind of a pitiable situation, Paul says. But in fact, Christ is resurrected from the dead. And the fact is that Christ was born of a virgin, and all those things that are connected to that then could, could be the case. Uh, If you're following along with the notes, I'm on page four, number four at the bottom. The virgin birth is essential though it may not be initially understood. So I'm making a concession here. Belief in the virgin birth, at least initially, is not required to enter into salvation. Remember, Scripture says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So it's not believe in every fine point of doctrine and you'll be saved, uh, thankfully, because uh, otherwise uh, us you know, people who were born again as children would have no hope, uh, just not realistic to expect that we'd be able to understand the ins and outs and uh, things of the virgin birth, or even just the statement of it. I mean, when you're a child, you don't even understand how birth works, right? So <laughs> you don't know how that uh, all fits together. But So it's not required to enter into salvation, but faith in the Lord is all that is required. But when a person is truly born again, the Spirit of God takes up residence in them and begins to teach them the things of God, and they're thus induced by the spiritual change that has happened to them to embrace the Bible's teaching. They do this from the inside out, not coerced 
externally, but internally they, are, they begin to be taught of God, that phrase in Scripture, taught by God to understand the things of God. They embrace the truth of Scripture. This is similar with other doctrines. For example, the doctrine of the Trinity. It's hard to understand, isn't it? But, uh, you know, for, for, it's hard to understand for a pastor or an experienced Bible teacher, much less a new convert. A new believer may not understand about the second coming of Christ uh, or the order of future events or all the ins and outs of creation and so on, but belief in these things is not required to be saved, but a born-again person will begin to naturally believe them as he matures in Christ and in some of those cases is weaned from the world. I'm thinking of specifically the doctrine of evolution that people embrace today. You really have to have a long, some people, a long weaning period to wean you off of the world's scientific emphasis in order to come to the realization, you know what, I don't have to believe like all the unbelieving scientists in order to be a faithful Christian. I can be released from that scourge and I can believe the scriptures as they state the case. It's not true that you have to, you know, throw away your brain to become a Christian, and nor is it true that you have to throw away science, uh, true science, truly done, to be a Christian, but you do have to throw away some notions of, of science to m- mature in the faith and to be a person who's pleasing to God. You can't just believe, you know, you can't just say, like some people do, well, science has to be right. No, it doesn't have to be right. God has to be true. God has to be true, and his word has to be true, but not science. So uh, the virgin birth is essential, though it may not be initially understood. But I say this, then, in addition to that, point number five on page five, the virgin birth is essential because denying it, knowingly denying it, indicates a lack of salvation. I do believe that. If a convert to Christ, in quotes, here, convert, subsequently rejects the teaching of the virgin birth, he's simply giving evidence of a lack of saving work of the Holy Spirit in his life. I don't see how you can kind of talk your, your way out of that. Um, the scriptures are very clear. Uh, a young woman who is a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son, and that is fulfilled in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 2, and Luke 1. Uh, at Gabriel's uh, announcement. If you say, no, that's not true, then you're, t- you're taking a clear teaching of Scripture and you're denying it, and that is evidence that you have not embraced the truth of the Holy Scriptures. That's a sad situation. Therefore, that person would not, in fact, be a true believer. What I'm saying here is a knowing denial of this doctrine discards All that the virgin birth means for the person and work of Christ and the integrity of the Bible is God's word. So he's saying, look, I know the prophecies have said that, but that can't happen, so that's not true. Uh, You know, maybe they don't fully understand the implications of what they're saying for the person and work of Christ, but if you don't have a virgin birth, you don't have a God-man, you don't have God come in the flesh, you don't have John 1.14 and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, if you don't have that, I mean, you don't have anything. It's just, you've, you've, you've just blown the foundation of the Christian faith right out from under it, one of the fundamental or foundational principles of the gospel. You've just destroyed if you 
deny this. So without this doctrine of the virgin birth, there's no savior nor salvation for any person. So thus the virgin birth is what we call a fundamental because it is an, it's an accurate litmus test or it's a, an accurate barometer of, of other doctrine in regard for the scripture that a person holds. So if you'd say, look, nope, what you're showing is that you have a disregard for scripture. And that's not what we know to be honoring to God. A denial of the virgin birth also demonstrates one's rejection of the supernatural. Christianity is a revealed religion. It is a supernatural thing. I hope you embrace that idea. Uh, when we say that it's supernatural, it means that it, it, it supersedes nature. When we say that it's a revealed religion, we don't really focus on that word religion. That's just a kind of a category term but because we don't believe in a religion per se, but a faith, a personal relationship with God through Christ in which we know God. But you understand that that category, that it's, it's not a religion that's built from the grassroots up. It's, it wasn't evolved from you know, baser forms in human uh, intellect and, and the construction of images and, and idols and that sort of thing. Christianity came from on high down. Yes, it is from top down. It came from God to us. It was revealed to us, not constructed by us. You know, the strange thing. I mean, God existed before anything. God created man. And, and now man thinks he's so wise that he figures out that man created God. He created the idea of God. But that's not true. And the idea of God is not just merely some useful evolutionary feature of human existence. God existed long before humanity and created humanity, and without God there would be no humanity at all. So you deny, uh, if you deny the virgin birth, you deny the supernatural revealed status of the Christian faith. That implies there was no creation, no virgin birth, no resurrection, no crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground, and in short, no Bible. This is all a refusal of God, a rejection of God. So, Christian God, to conclude, can do stupendous miracles like the virgin birth. Are there any other gods out there, quote unquote, who can do the same? No. No other God has ever truly taken up residence in a man in such a way that it can be said that he is the God-man. Only of Jesus Christ can this be said. He is the God-man. Uh, how did the song say, was it tonight we had, or was it this morning? The song that said he's truly, very, truly man and very God or something like that, trying to express that idea uh, that is true. You just think of it as 100% man, 100% God. All God and all man, not part and part, like, you know, not, not half God and half man. Or like, uh, what was Dagon? Remember Dagon, the Philistine god? Half man and half fish. Uh, was the top half the fish or the bottom half the fish? The bottom half was the fish? Yeah, so it was like a, a, a mermaid kind of a situation. That's not what Jesus is. He's not half God, half man. He's all God, all man, all together in one person. Did you have a question or comment?
Mm-hmm. Oh, forgiven, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Very clever English uh, language use there, yes, forgiven. Very interesting. Yeah, so make sure that you have that notion in mind that our God, our, our, our Savior, our Lord, is not like a, um, you know, kind of morph, uh, interspecies, uh, you know, combo of, of two, you know, that, that might be, you know, like I was saying this morning in the sci-fi movie or something like that. This is, this is something different than, than that, something far more wonderful than that far more difficult to imagine than that. Uh, it is the God-man. So thus the importance of the virgin birth and the Christian teaching on it. So we're going to leave that for now. Welcome your questions on that if you have any at another time. Yes, or now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, and Luke 1 and 2, yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yep, uh, Becky's referring to the question that Mary was asking um, when she said, uh, let's see here, where is it? Verse 34 of Luke 1, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? Her, her wonder at this, how is this going to happen? And the angel answered and said to her, and this is what Becky was saying was just floored her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The only time that ever happened in the human race, in human history, in history at all, uh, that's it. The power of the highest will overshadow you. She was probably a mid to late teenager or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. She was very faithful, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah. The the unusual maturity of the young woman here, Mary, that she said, "Okay, God, I'm at your disposal. Use me how you will. I will serve the way that you have assigned." And uh, that's a unique, a unique assignment, isn't it? Uh, there were other assignments that were. Uh, Difficult assignments that God gave to people, Paul, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, very difficult assignments, and they uh, received those with uh, sometimes varying levels of uh, uh, gratitude in their hearts, sometimes very difficult assignments, but uh, Mary did. It's interesting to compare the response of Mary to the response of Zechariah, who, you know, he questioned Gabriel too, and Gabriel said, well... (laughs) Uh, you're going to be quiet now for a little while. You know, he, he was older. He was a priest. Uh, he should have been uh, more responsive to the word of God through the angel Gabriel, but he wasn't. 
And here is a young, faithful gal in the days of Herod the king in the hill country of Judea. Uh, well, she went down there anyway. She went back and had to travel back to Bethlehem and have the little one. But what, a, what an example. Favored by God. By the way, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, I think it is, uh, uses that same word, favored by God, of all believers, of all believers. You are uh, favored in the beloved, Paul says in Ephesians, just like Mary was called favored by God. Um, And so we don't put her on a pedestal, but all believers have that kind of status, being favored by God. All right, anything else on that? All right, we have a few minutes remaining this evening, and I'd like to turn your attention then to where we were headed originally this evening, which is Matthew 13. And in Matthew 13, we have before us the parable of the wheat and the tares. And I went over the parable itself on um, Wednesday night, I'd like to do uh, just a quick review of the parable and then come to the correspondence of that parable to real life, if you will, or spiritual truth. Uh, And the parable was basically, you know, a man went and sowed a good seed in his field. Actually, his servants did for him. An enemy came uh, secretly, uh, sowed a bad seed in his field, fake wheat, to ruin it perhaps not only for that year, but for many years to come. Once you sow uh, weeds in a field, they, they're hard to get rid of. They seem to come back and come back and come back. And it says uh, that he, he came and then you know, almost casually went his way, went his way. He didn't care one lick about what he had done. And that's an odd situation. I, I thought I'd comment a little bit more on that. I was... Uh, encountered a, a video about a, a man who had a bunch of his uh, property stolen, uh, f- and um, he found out who did it and called the police and uh, kind of camped out by the guy's house. He could see some of the, the, the vehicles that he had caught on camera coming and going in his property and taking the stuff. And it's just strange to me how the guy who did the thievery could think that it's somehow okay for him to take, I mean, uh, thousands of dollars worth of, of, of property, you know, hunting equipment and this and that and different things, just to take it and to hide it in his, in his, in his garage. I mean, you know, like Aiken, right? Why did he do that? It's like this fellow, he came and he, he does all this devilish work and then he just goes his way, the Bible says. He just goes on his way, just merrily along, what kind of craziness is this, that people do that? Um, sad situation. Of, but you know what? It shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us, right? It shouldn't surprise us. It's the human nature. Yeah. So anyway, that, that story had an uh, okay ending. But uh, this story, if it did in fact happen, uh, didn't have an okay ending. Um, <laughs> but... In fact, Roman law, I said last time, Roman law forbid this kind of behavior. This was illegal to go and sow something in somebody else's field. That's not your property. You know, no trespassing, stay off the property, don't mess with other people's stuff, don't sow it with salt, 
you know, don't put weeds in it and all of that. So they, the servants told the master, look, it looks like somebody's really done us harm here. What do we do? Shall we go and gather up these uh, weeds? And, and the master thought about it and said, no, you know, when you gather them up, the tares, as they're called, the weeds, you're going to uproot the wheat, the real good stuff, with them. And so we're just going to have to deal with this and come back at the end of the season, gather everything together, make the final sorting process then, gather the weeds up, burn them, gather the wheat, put it into the barn. So although it's not ideal, there is a need for the wheat and the tares, once you have them, to coexist. So now, um, the Lord gives a parable of the mustard seed and of the leaven, and then... Um, speaks about the tares and it gives an explanation of it in verses 36 to 43, and that's what I'd like to go to tonight. The identity of the various parts of the parable is outlined uh, very clearly for us in verses 36 and following. Now, this is not always the case with the parables. First of all, it's not always the case that the Lord gives the detailed step-by-step explanation. Second of all, it's not always the case that the parables have like some uh, correspondence in every particular detail of the parable. Sometimes the parable is just a story that has one main point, and you don't have to look for all kinds of hidden things in all the different parts and pieces of the parable. But here the Lord gives us uh, an example uh, of a good parable that has a lot of detail, and then he gives us the explanation of it. And so they come, the, the disciples do, and ask him, hey, can you tell us the parable of the terrors of the field. What does this mean? And how is, it, you know, how is it related to the kingdom of God? And so he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. And so he goes down through all the different elements of the parable and he gives them. He says, the tares are the son, sons of the devil. The enemy who sows the tares is the devil himself. So that's kind of interesting. If the enemy is the devil and the tares are his sons, if the sower of the good seed is the son of man, then the, good, the wheat must be his sons, children of God. The harvest, he says, is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Can you imagine the angels saying to God in heaven, there are tares down there on that earth. Shall we go and uproot them now? I mean, they were ready to go. That's, that's rough. You think about it. Those angels could, be, could just snap too and take care of all people who reject God. Of course, we said last time that we all start out in a way as tares, don't we? Start out as tares. And the delay in the reaping, which is the end of the age, the harvest, allows some tares to be converted over to wheat. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? But that's not the point of this. This is dealing with another kind of aspect of it. Uh, The Lord talks about the gathering and the burning of the tares. There's a sorting process and then the burning process that says the angels will separate the sons of of the devil at the end of the age and take them out of the kingdom. Uh, Then they will be thrown into a fiery furnace and experience great torment. This is the final judgment. By the way, let's, let's, let's look at that in a little more detail. Um, 
Let me see, where is this? I'm looking for it. In verse 41, Then the Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. Now, some people read that, and I think they read a little bit too much into it. They say, well, it says the Son of Man will send them, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend. And so they say, well, if He's gathering out of His kingdom, that must mean that they're in the kingdom. That must mean that the kingdom is operational at the time when this parable is operational, meaning we're in the kingdom now. They see that one step to the other to the other leads all the way to this big concept that we're in the kingdom. Now, I think what's happening here is just simply this. The Lord Jesus returns, Matthew chapter 25. He's establishing his kingdom, and he's saying, you are out of my kingdom. You are in my kingdom, right? There's not a huge you know, conclusion about, oh, the kingdom is already operational before the Lord returns. It's simply that when the Lord returns, he's saying, uh, this is my kingdom now, okay? And you're in here and you're a tear, you're gone. You're in here and you're a believer, stay in, okay? That's, that's all that it means. It's, there's, you should not read any more into it than that. So uh, then he, uh, the Lord says, the wheat is gathered and stored in the barn. The barn is like the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom will be stored in the kingdom of God and will shine with glory And although it's not mentioned here, there is also a judgment associated with them, but it's a positive outcome, that judgment. So now I want you to go back to verse uh, 38. The field is the world. The field is the world. Jesus clearly identifies the field. We're not to read this text and say, oh, there's going to be tares in the church. He never said that it was in the church. He said it was in the world, okay? Read it carefully. Read it literally. It's not okay to be lax about tares joining or being in the church. They're not to share in the life of the church. And although some may sit in meetings, they need to be made to understood that they are tares and not wheat. Tares can be saved, but... We have to keep the church pure, and it must be distinct from the world. So we speak of regenerate church membership, or we could say it this way, church membership of wheat only, okay? (laughs) Not tares, okay? Tares cannot be true members of the body of Christ. And if it becomes evident that somebody has made a false profession of faith, and really is a tear and not a true wheat plant, then we take a step of action, which we call by the simple name church discipline, to remove them from the membership of the church. And that's done for uh, disobedient believers who are unrepentant about their sin. Um, Now, I take it from this that... When, when the Lord, well, the Lord instructing the angels or the master of the property instructing his servants to allow the tares and the wheat to remain together, this is interesting to me because I think it, it does teach that there must be a level of toleration in our, in our attitude toward people in the world. Again, not in the church membership for tares, 
but in the world. We know that believers and unbelievers are to coexist. In fact, that's the only way we have touch contact with unbelievers to share the gospel with them. You know, we have them in our extended families, we have them in our workplaces and our schools and all that, and just out and about. Um, you know, so, but when they become evident, when somebody, is, you know, evidences that they are a tear, we know that they are all around. There's also a need not only for toleration, but also for discernment. Maybe can I pause for just a second? When I say toleration, one of the blessings of our society that we have learned and have been it's kind of been passed down to us, is this notion of toleration. The, the reason that the American society has worked so well is because we found a good uh, middle ground as to this whole matter of religion. We're not out there killing everybody because they believe differently than we do, you know, uh, like they have in other countries, uh, Catholics and Protestants and Muslims and you know Buddhists and all these you know they get all upset at each other and they they kill each other and all this you know this sect of this religion and that sect of the same religion and they go at it and all that there must be some level of toleration the Lord is saying look they're true Christians there are there are tares there are tares that are very close to your you know, your doctrine. And then there are tares that are very far from, you know, much more weedy, different looking uh, than you. Not different appearance, but different doctrinally, different worship. And we are told to just chill, <laughs> cool it. Don't, don't be, you know, too uptight. That doesn't mean don't witness to them. It means, you know, don't like establish a religious state and then try to kill everybody that doesn't agree with your doctrine. That's idiocy. Okay, we, we persuade. We are ambassadors. We try to persuade men. We don't force them by twisting their arm behind their back or threatening to behead them if they don't believe the way that we do. So I think that's an interesting connection to uh, the way in which we have found to function in our world today, and at least in the West in, uh, increasingly so, there are people who don't understand this and don't have toleration. They claim to be tolerant, but they don't have true toleration for others that believe differently than they do. And that's a sad thing that we're kind of retrograding back into a tribalism where there's hatred and, and even violence against those that we disagree with. There's also a need for discernment because it's difficult sometimes to tell which are the tares and which are the wheat as evidenced in the parable because the weeds initially appear like, to, like wheat. They look quite similar. And so some discernment is necessary to know which are tares and which are wheat. And it, ex, it behooves us to examine ourselves to make sure that we're producing true heads of grain and not just weeds and that we would not demonstrate ourselves to be weeds after all is said and done. The parable presents a problem. Why not remove the sons of the kingdom, immediately. Uh, why not take the unbelievers from the world now, initially? Well, a couple of points on that. You can imagine that removing the unbelievers would be problematic. For one thing, it would destroy families whose roots are tied together, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, 
even though there are believers and unbelievers in a family, they still constitute a family. You can't just be plucking the family apart and expect there to be a good result. Secondly, another issue is when would the unbelievers be removed? All of us start out as tares, and only at some later point do we become wheat. And that's a mercy of God that he brings us to himself. This problem is minimized, I suppose, by the theory that God knows who the elect are and could perfectly decide who to keep and who to remove. But you know, he could remove all people who never will become Christians, but then there will still be some people who haven't yet become Christians and are still tares effectively. You know, it's an, it's an untenable kind of uh, a problem to try to solve. Um, you know, and, and by the way, how many of you had unbelieving parents or grandparents or great-grandparents? If they had been removed from the world, where would you be? Huh, you wouldn't have come. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been born if they had been removed prematurely. So, so some parables become wheat, and that is an expression of God's long-suffering and, and love toward humanity. Under the miraculous influence of the sower, Jesus, and the non-miraculous influence of the wheat that surrounds it, we are able to bring people to faith in Christ. But the devil is very busy, isn't he? He's trying to evangelize a bunch of people for himself. And I shouldn't say evangelize. Is there a corresponding word to evangel? Uh, the evangel is the good word, the good promise. Is there one for the bad promise? Like, I don't know, I have to think of it right now, get my Greek out and kind of construct a word. But it's not evangelism, it's bad evangelism, okay? It's, it's, uh, it's taking people and telling them the bad news, uh, trying to get people to live for themselves, not truly good news. He does all kinds of things that lead people astray from God. He, and he's been highly effective, in part because the nature of people is very responsive to terrorish things, tear things from the beginning of their lives. And in reality, there's not a huge percentage of wheat in most fields or most countries of the world in some places, there are vanishingly small numbers of wheat plants. If you could see the fields of the world with spiritual eyeglasses, kind of spiritual you know, x-ray vision, you might see some fields that have a few wheat plants, you know, but acres and acres and acres of unbelievers. Can you imagine? Yeah. There's no shortage of work to be done. Then there's the question about the timing of the harvest event, which Jesus says is the end of the age. And how does this apply to the church? So some say that Jesus is talking about the end of this age and that it must be that our present age ends with a general judgment without a pre-tribulation rapture and, and all the things that we know that the Scripture teaches that we've, in, that we've studied over the years. To the contrary, it's very plausible to believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. What happens after the rapture is that during the tribulation, there will be more sowing of the good news of the kingdom. Some will believe and others will not. When Jesus returns then at the end of that tribulation, his angels will come and do the sorting process. And when he comes, he will uh, sit in judgment and gather the sheep and the goats, right hand, left hand. He will judge the goats those that did not treat him or his people well, evidencing their lack of salvation. The, the sheep, they enter into the kingdom and shine brightly in that kingdom and are welcomed in. Um, 
So I don't think I need to go over that too much more. Our, our age kind of stands a little bit apart from that because God is calling out for himself a people to be the uh, queen, the bride of Christ, of the Lamb, to reign with him in that future kingdom. <clears throat> so I conclude, uh, I guess, kind of a long conclusion perhaps, but uh, are you a wheat or are you a tear? Are you a son of the kingdom or a son of the wicked one? Do you hold ultimate allegiance to Jesus or ultimate allegiance to the world and the flesh and the devil? The righteous shine in the kingdom because they share in and reflect the radiant glory of Jesus Christ who's redeemed them, but those who are tares will be subject to burning. And that always in Scripture, uh, that kind of context always is a judgment context. Obviously, there is some fire context in which the fire is purifying, but often in a case like this, you know, when you take the branches and you cast them into a pile and you burn them, that's not purification, that's destruction. And that's what is the case here for the tares. Oh, by the way, another thought here. Note that the people who do the sorting are not people. They're angels, right? The parable is the exact opposite of a call to the believer to root out unbelievers from this world. You leave that to the angels. That's their job. That's their job under the assignment of God. We do not convert, again, by the power of the sword, nor kill those who do not believe, and so on. We let the angels do that sorting process. Let the Lord do his judgment. We do what our part is. We've been assigned a part. We just have to stick to it. When we, Here's your job. Just do your job. I gave you one thing to do. Okay. Don't go outside of that and say, well, I'm going to help God out, You know, quicken this judgment and get this all sorted out and everything like that. Just do your job. The Great Commission is what I'm talking about. And you could add the Great Commandment. Love your... God and love your neighbor as yourself and then carry out the Great Commission, teach others to follow Christ and baptize them and, and so on. Um, I think I'll hold there, but notice that the Lord ends here in verse 43 with this familiar call, he who has, has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, that's a, that's a call for all of us, but especially those that are a little bit of a rebellious heart or those who aren't paying attention. The Lord is not giving you the luxury of saying, oh, I didn't know that was on the syllabus. Uh, you know, what do you mean there was an exam at the end of the semester? You can't do that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen up. Pay attention. It's all right here. There's no mystery behind it now. The mystery has been revealed. And you have now to deal with this spiritual question, am I a wheat or am I a tare? Am I a son of God, a son of the kingdom, or am I a son of the evil one? Ask yourself that question. Deal with that seriously. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will help us as we ponder that matter and anyone who may be listening in to this message tonight to sit and think, am I a tare or wheat? Am I a son of the devil or a son of God? And not to make excuses like saying, oh, we're all sons of God. 
No, we're not. We're all sons of the devil to start with. We're all sons of darkness to start with. And only those that come to faith in Christ and believe in God through Christ are sons of the kingdom. So we pray for your help to bring one or two more by this message to faith in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to close up shop here and uh, let you go home. You know, it's been a long weekend for some of you, and trust that you will be uh, well-rested this evening and enjoy a good week. We look forward to be back together on Wednesday to pray. Now, let's see. Today is the, uh, that's the 29th, isn't it? De- uh, December 29th, Wednesday? Yeah, but Wednesday will be the 29th, right? Yeah, so and by the end of the week, it's the end of the year. So then we'll be into... Uh, January 1st, lickety-split before we know it. So think of that. 2021 is going to be in the books like 2020 before it. Remember at the beginning of this year, everybody said, oh, I hope this year is better than last year. In a way, it hasn't been. It's pretty much been like an uh, uh, instant replay almost. Not in every respect, but there's been a lot of similar problems this year as last year. So Maybe 2022 will offer that uh, respite for a little bit. But you know what? We live in a sin-cursed world. There's always going to be problems. We just have to settle our, our minds on that fact and be ready to serve the Lord despite it. Amen. Good night, everybody. God bless you.